This is the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 18th episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please email me at rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Homebodies Yoga Podcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you especially might want to subscribe because now that the show is every two weeks, maybe you got out of the rhythm and you forgot. And, and if you subscribed, you would have remembered. So that could be a good idea. And then maybe while you subscribe, you could rate and review. I don't know. It could be like a mm-hmm. give a mouse a cookie situation. I don't think I need to explain give a mouse a cookie any further. Um, if you know, you know. If you don't, it's not important at all. Um, so we'll just get into my practice this week. Um, well, I guess you should know I'm not going to be talking about extended side angle or warrior two or anything like that this week. Um, I, well, because I really believe that the yoga practice extends beyond the mat and my mind has been on that part beyond the mat this week. Um, I think as yogis, our number one goal is to be aware and awake. And then because of that awareness and awakeness, um, we should seek social change when we see injustice. And um, part of that, especially in the world that I'm living in, is working toward racial justice. Um, In the last few years, um, like many white people, it's become abundantly clear to me that the system that I was raised in, in the late 80s, early 90s of not seeing color (laughs) is ridiculous and is created for the comfort of white people. Um, And I'll be honest, the conversations about race are still uncomfortable for me, I think mostly because I'm in this place of privilege and um, I haven't had to have them. And also, and that's another part of the yoga practice because I know for me, a big part of meditation is this learning to be uncomfortable and that is an important part I think for white people in the talk of social justice is learning to be uncomfortable um, sitting in that place of privilege Um, and you know the shame and the guilt that goes along with that so um this week I interviewed Dia Penning who I know from Uh, yoga teaching. She is a yin instructor. Um, I've taken her class many times and she is really wonderful at what she does. Um, And so, you know, I I kind of invited her on the show because of that, but it actually turned into so much more than that because Dia is also a social justice facilitator. Um, And I'll just read you a little bit from her bio. Dia dances in the intersections of art, yoga, and social justice. A yoga practitioner for over 20 years, she discovered her love of yoga through a book she checked out from a Midwestern local library. And then goes on. She views yoga as a tool for social change, integrating it into her work as a social justice facilitator and coach by encouraging a deep exploration of structural inequity through personal transformation and intentional paradigm shift. 
as I was preparing for the interview with Dia, after I read Dia's bio, I was so excited to talk to her about social justice and yoga and the way that the two are related. Um, and then I kept reading more about her, kind of like my research before I, I interview a guest, and I learned that she had been running for school board, and that when she was running for school board, she did a, a school board in Oakland, California. Uh, so she did this um, forum, like a school board forum, to kind of talk about her running and uh, she was zoom bombed by white supremacists using really racist and um, hurtful language um, so I was really shocked by that and um, so during the part w where I catch up with guests before I kind of say like and welcome to the guests so the I don't know the pre part um, I mentioned it because I don't know I guess <laughs> I just wanted to make sure she was okay. And um, the conversation we have, I, we actually talked about and ended up deciding to put on the podcast because, um, well, there's an interesting juxtaposition of me, a white lady, being so shocked and her, a person of color, um, sort of not being nonchalant because of course it was scary and she was fearing for her and her family's safety, but just this knowledge that this is commonplace, that black and brown people are often um, the subject of white supremacists and intimidation when they run for local and national government. Um, so, in re-listening to this, um, one thing that um, I I really reflected on in myself uh, is that um, I express shock to her, which um, it was honest, but also extremely naive, and I regret it because I think that when Black and Brown people tell someone like me, a white lady, about an experience they're having, when my response is shock, even if it's genuine shock, I think it's a way of gaslighting to the person who's talking to me and, you know, on the show, anyone who's listening. Because one, it makes it seem as though it's shocking, so it doesn't happen often, which it does. And, or worse, it, it gives a sense of disbelief as though I didn't believe Dia, which of course I did. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this, right? Because it, in a way, you know, like in yoga, we always, a lot, very often we talk about intention. And I think there is a place for intention. But also, even if your intentions are good, it's important to know that you can still really mess up. And in this case, I did. Um, and I left my mess up in um, because I'm hoping it can be a learning experience for other white people listening. Um and that's not the only time I mess up in this interview and, you know, kind of talk all over myself and sound like a big dummy. Um, I am so, so grateful for the composure and wisdom and kindness of Dia, especially when I re-listened. I was like, oh my God, I would have hung up on me if I were her. <laughs> and it's not something she should have to do at all. Um, but I, I do think my conversation with her, I learned so much. And then in re-listening to myself and the way that I, um, 
and my discomfort in talking about race and even in talking about gender. There's a part in there where I'm clearly really uncomfortable talking about the reckoning of male uh, yoga gurus. Uh, like I can't even say for some reason, like it doesn't feel, I don't know, I guess it didn't feel polite to say that they um, sexually harassed and in some cases Bikram uh, raped women who were followers of theirs. Um, and I still own some of their books, um, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but uh, I, I will say, I, I also hope that my being a dummy doesn't um, dissuade you from listening because Dia is uh, just so, uh, you know that saying like the the more understanding you have something of something complicated, the, the simpler you can explain it. Is that the saying? You know what I mean? Like the more aware, the, the more you've studied something, the easier it is to explain it in simple terms. Uh, Dia definitely has that. Like, it's clear that she has worked in academia for a really long time, but she has a way of explaining social issues and yogic issues and so many other things, body image, uh, women's uh, issues, like feminism, like just she has so many ways of explaining it uh, in such simple terms um, that I, I'm still thinking about things she said. Uh, so I really hope that you can um, get beyond me and listen to her. Um, and then the other um, thing I wanted to share is I emailed her right before this just to make sure it was still okay to talk about um, her running for school board and what happened because I wanted to make sure that she felt safe and that she was safe in me talking about it. And she said, people need to know, run with it. And it's not a decision that anyone should have to consider their safety over or um, letting people know about the way that black and letting white people know about the way that people of color are treated. Um, but I just thought it was so brave of her to email back right away and say that. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I just really love talking to her and luckily she promised she'd be back. So here is Dia. Oh, and, and like I said, it's not exactly polished because this is the part I wasn't intending to publish, uh, the beginning part, but um, I think you'll be able to figure it out. We're, we're talking, and it starts with me asking if she's uh, still running for school board. Um, okay, so here is Dia. They're here, and so they're actually leaving at the end of the month because everyone's going back to school. Yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, um, are you still running for school board? I am not. No, no, oh. no, no. The elections for school board were in November. Um, I dropped out of the race for school board because um, I, we were in danger. My family was in danger. Um, there was a lot of stuff that was happening, you know, during those election rounds and um, we were targeted. And so we had an open FBI case and there were people that were threatening our lives. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it happens. I mean, it happens to a lot of people of color that run for office. I just decided that it was not actually worth it to me. <laughs> so I didn't want to impact that particular system enough that putting my family in danger was worth it. I think that there are lots of other situations where people make that choice. Um, but this was just not a choice that I wanted to make. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, when you, once you have a family, everything is so the decisions you yeah. make are about your family, you know? Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. Ah, oh, geez. Oh, that makes you so mad. <laughs> I'm sure it makes you really mad too. I know I want to make you yeah. deal with it, but it's yeah, infuriating. I mean, you know, it's just like, it is so much part of that work. So if you, like, if you were looking at some of the stuff, so you know that I do a lot of racial justice work. And um, I mean, I've been followed to my car. I've been screamed at. I've been like, I've had like six foot six tall men, like stand over me telling me that I was like doing the work of the devil. It's just like that kind of system change work really gets at um, like foundations that people have of how the world works. And when you start to just poke at them a little, it can really bring out some some really terrible behavior in people that seemingly would not um, do that kind of stuff, but it can really make people quite unhinged. And, and one of the things that was happening when I was running for school board is that I am, um, I'm very clear about how uh, charter schools work and the intent behind charter schools, and the intent behind charter schools is actually to subvert the democratic process um, in education so that the community no longer has say in what's happening in the schools, and then the schools can be run by corporations. And so um, I talked really freely about that, and there are lots of people with lots of money that actually don't want people to have that information. So um, it's just how it works. <laughs> it's just how it works. Are those parents or are they like people who own the corporations? Yeah, it's like it's corporate interest. And so then there are um, there are places like um, uh, there are different places, um, different organizations that are nonprofits that that sort of push that agenda that are funded by corporate money. Um, And many of them are run by black and brown people because there aren't great alternative to education if you can't afford private school so it's like this it's this really insidious loop where um when it comes to school the options that are there for a lot of us that can't afford uh, private school are charter schools but charter schools are not regulated um, and teachers are not unionized and so there's no protection and they also don't serve kids that are at the margins so any kids that have special needs are you know, pushed out and pushed into into public school, and then our public school resources are going only towards um, the most, like the the most impacted of our kids. Um, so it's like this big this big circle, and but yes, the the I mean they the corporations pour millions of dollars into charter schools, and they pour millions of dollars into school board campaigns. Mm. It's bonkers. It is complete just craziness that is and then those the those millions of dollars go to like false advertising and things that make people angry and that leads to things like people fall into your car so yeah yes or zoom bombing you and yeah 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 uh yeah i wasn't sure you were comfortable talking about that but i was reading about that and i was just like and i just think of you as like the like kind, like so calm and kind and like strong, but soft spoke. I just like, <laughs> I cannot believe. Um, I have a saying with my friend, with some of my friends, which is not positive, but I always say like, people are the worst. Like people, they're just they the worst. Be. They really can they be really the worst. Be. They really can be. I mean, they can be I the mean, best, but. 
Yeah, people really can be the worst. I think I, it was funny. I was just having, so we didn't have heat for a couple of weeks. And um, and we're in, we're in California, so it's not the same as not having heat in the Midwest. But, um, you know, at night it would be like 63 degrees in, in our house. And so finally I got the... Um, the person who installed, we have radiant floor heating, the person who installed it to come out and take a look at it. And, um, and we were chatting and and he was like, he's like, you know, you have been surprisingly chill about this. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And he was like, oh, let's be clear. Um, most people would have called lawyers at this point. And I was like, what? Like, just going back to like, people are the worst, right? Yeah. I was like, really? Really? That's the thing? And he said, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Like, but I live in Oakland. Like I, you know, it's not like it gets cold enough where we're in any danger. It's just a little uncomfortable. And he's like, no. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. People the worst. Yeah. yeah. People are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, we like really just jumped right in. Um, I, I am recording, but if you wanted to take any of that out, we didn't, I didn't say anything. So I'm like happy to record. I'm happy to take anything out. Um, but I, so I, um, well, first of all, your name is Dia Penning. (laughs) Dia Penning. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm like, um, you know, when your brain is like falling over itself, I just have so many things I want to talk about. But um, okay. Uh, so do you have And I know you from Yin and I contacted you mostly because I was like, she's a wonderful Yin teacher. I'd love to talk to her. Then I did research about what you do. And then I was like, wow, now I really want to talk to her. <laughs> um, so can we talk a little bit about your work with the Equity Collective? Yeah, Absolutely. So um, I had been um, one of my one of the things that I did in life is I worked in arts education for a long time. I worked for the city of San Francisco and I ran their arts education um, the arts education portion of the um, arts commission, and I did a lot of arts education policy. And what ended up what ended up being really apparent to me because um, I'm a child of the '90s, and '90s was sort of like um, like post racist right like we were just kind of like we don't talk about it this is not a thing anymore um and even being a black woman that was the reality that I was living in a mixed race my mom's white there's a there's a lot there to unpack right um so one of the things that I noticed when I was working at the arts commission was that the vast majority of people that go into art teaching are middle-class white women um not entirely but most um and that there was quite a hmm, quite a lot of assumptions that they were making about their students. And so the conversation about that sort of started there. I had had other conversations like in my in my life along. Like I remember in my government classes getting to really heating heated discussions with my teachers and about like jury of peers and stuff like that. Um, but this was the first real time that I was starkly aware of something that um, seemed pretty systemic to me. And so I started bringing in folks to do training with the art teachers, just sort of thinking about how they were addressing their kids, the expectations that they had of their kids, um, like making um, art planning, like art lesson planning that was specific to the the kids, but not necessarily like there was a lot of like um, culturally specific that that ended up being like, you know, low-key racist so I I you know brought some folks in so that we could talk about it and then um I was hired by a university in Chicago um 
Columbia to run their civic engagement and social justice programming. So I moved back. I moved from San Francisco back to Chicago, and I set up this amazing program where we were doing work across the city, um, bringing in international artists to do site-specific work. We did a lot of work around um, community arts and the way that the you know the institution of the university works with um, the community and specifically around art and making um, site-specific projects and stuff like that. And um, and I got pregnant while I was in Chicago. We planned. My wife and I planned it, but um, I was sort of like in this space where I was running, like I, I had had really big jobs up until this point. Um, and so I was running this department and, um, and she uh, works in advertising. And so she was running a lot of um, campaigns and, um, and she received words because she was still working here in, um, in the Bay area that they were going to, um, they were going to promote her. So we decided to move back here and I took a hiatus from work. And um, one of the organizations that I had hired when I was working at the, the at San Francisco in San Francisco at the Arts Commission um, had just gotten a really big grant to write a ton of curriculum. So they hired me to write arts integrated racial justice curriculum. And um, and so I did that. I spent about four years working for them doing writing that curriculum and to me that was I, I sort of refer to that as like my PhD my PhD time because it was a deep dive I found out a lot about colonialist history and sort of how um, colorism works throughout the you know the world and um, there was just a lot like I was really diving into systems of oppression and um, and I continued to do work with Shakti and then slowly so Shakti Butler runs um, the organization World Trust and it's in o- Oakland, California. And they do international work around race, power, and privilege and have um, created several films that are pretty amazing. The, the most incredible one that really gives a good um, understanding of how systems of oppression work is uh, Cracking the Code. So um, I spent that time working with her, learning a ton, going through my own process of racial awakening, sort of really understanding my own proximity to whiteness and, um, and navigating my own privilege. And then, um, and then I started, people started asking me to do workshops, um, sometimes using the curriculum that I had written for Shakti and sometimes just, you know, for my own experience. And so I, I sort of slowly built, um, a group of folks that were interested in having me come to do work. And I was really curious about what racial justice was looking like in a bunch of different industries. So this was probably, let me see, 2014 was when, um, 2013, 2014 was when I um, started the Equity Collective. And I invited folks that were, um, starting to ask those questions a little bit more pointedly in their like their um, spheres of influence so in in their arenas and and the different places that they were working and we started partnering to do workshops in different places um and part of what our aim was to make sure that racial justice educators diversity equity and inclusion specialists were paid equitably so what happens often in diversity equity and inclusion work is that um, white people 
often gay white men or white women are paid much more than people of color for doing the work. And so we were really interested in what it would look like to take that money and spread it out equitably amongst all of the people that were working in within the collective. So we did it. You know, we we still occasionally take pro- take projects, but all of us still have our own things that, that are working. And so it's not something that we're working on. So it's not something that, um, that has become like the thing that we do. It's still sort of like a loose association and a project. Excuse me. But I think the conversation has been really interesting about how people get paid and why they get paid what they get paid and, and is directly related to um, all of the equity work that we're doing. And one of the things that came up for me when I was working um, for Shakti at World Trust is that a lot of a lot of equity organizations still have the same issues that you see in the larger society. And so um, what does it look like for equity organizations to actually do the work that they're trying to support other people in doing? So there's a bunch of other places that I've worked with that are still struggling with those questions and um, I think now is a very different time than it was in 2014. There has been so much that has happened in the world and so many things that people really are taking so much more seriously. And I think this year has been a significant turning point for a lot of folks. Um, and so the questions are different and how people are approaching it are different. And and the demands of people are, of color are different. And so I think that because we have an understanding of how deeply um, inequitable so many things are that they that people of color are just like we're, we're not actually going to allow this to stand anymore so things are starting to shift in a way that they were not you know 10 15 years ago uh, the part that is like blowing my mind the most is inequity work to I know I, I'm supposed to felicity a workshop inequity work white people are paid better that 100%. is always. And they're often the ones that are, that have the corporate position, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Shit. But you say, but you really ended that on such a positive note that you're seeing such a big turning point. I, I tend toward the negative sometimes. So to me, I'm like, well, is anything really changing? Like mm-hmm. are, are people, and I, I do definitely feel like, you know, definitely corporations said things were changing and people yeah. are saying, and, um, but I love what you said that like people of color are now saying like enough's enough. Um, yeah. So that the change is really coming from people of color that, and yeah. people are, are finally white people are listening, some white people. Yeah. Um, yeah. But w- what are like specific things you're seeing that are like positive that you're like, oh, things are there. We've hitting a turning point. Well, I mean, I, it, and this, this isn't, I'm like back and forth on this, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is how social media works and how many people follow um, these amazing women that are doing work in the world. Um, I think about, uh, my gosh, I'm so terrible with names. I can see her face. Um, She wrote Emergent Strategy. I'll have to look it up. You put it in the show notes. No big deal. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, And then... And so I'll put in the show notes, but there are, there are a bunch of amazing women that folks are following online and starting to have conversations. So one of the things that I've noticed for myself, I grew up in um, a family of 
uh, white lesbians. I mean, I had contact with my black family, but my mom and her wife were the people that raised me. And um, my, my social group was largely white people. And I always had an understanding of systems. I think that I often thought more about gender than I did about race. Um, but I remember having conversations with friends, like as a teenager in my 20s, and kind of pushing at some of the foundations that they had, the foundational beliefs that they had, just, you know, like um, uh, letting our male friends, you know, like casually, like sexually harass us, right? Like we're talking and, and that just being like, oh, you know, that's just sort of how it is. And I think that, um, and because I wasn't, as clear about my analysis around race, I think that I was asking some of the same questions, like why are, like when we go to restaurants, why am I the only black person? Like I would ask those Mm -hmm. types of questions. Um, I think that what is happening now on a personal level is that white people are seeing that, right? That they are actually Mm -hmm. like, oh, there are no people of color in this room. Some, some white people, not all. or like, if, you know, we're talking about uh, gender that, um, you know, many of my women friends are like, oh, that was actually really wrong. Like these things that we sort of allowed to go on for years, that was actually really wrong and predatory behavior. And I think that there is, um, and this goes, and this sort of goes back and forth to the, the work that I do with yin and yoga. Um, this goes back to this idea that I do you think that there is like a a different consciousness? And part of that is information. Um, I think part of it is social media. I think part of it has been like this time that we've had for the last year where people have just had to reflect in a different way. And some people have um, reflected internally and thought about the way that they sort of interact in the world. Externally, I think that what I'm seeing, which is a weird marker, but like in advertising, you just see a lot more people of color reflected. I remember when, and so there are like these small social things that you see now, whether or not that has an impact on larger systems remains to be seen. But I think that culturally, you're starting to see these small things that give the illusion that that a larger shift is happening. And so the way that I think about systems change is that there's a combination of social factors and policy. So we'll see. We'll see. I think that the, the policy that is happening with the Biden administration is, is slowly starting to address some of the poverty factors. Um, there, there are hundreds of years of policy that need to be addressed in this country, um, and it can't be un, you know it can't be undone during the Obama administration or the Biden administration. It is something that like is going to take a while. So you know it may be what's in our lifetime, probably not. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 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 I uh, I loved what you said about social media because I think you know obviously there are negative things to social media, but I do think in a certain way when the when corporations or or the political sphere or whoever won't 
give someone attention, won't give them, you know, a platform to speak on. Social media all of a sudden does. Like I know I've learned so much about race from people I follow on social media. Like just like yes. you said, yes. like yes. just oh Adrian Marie Brown. That's, that's <laughs> I knew it would come to you. <laughs> Adrian Marie Brown. And and what did she yes. write again? It was called what was called? She wrote um emergent strategy and then also pleasure activist um both amazing amazing books and just her her analysis to me is so accessible and um like for white people i think that and then there are so many amazing books i mean so that's the the whole other component is that there are so many amazing intellectuals and um creative writers and people that have you know worked in journalism excuse me, that are producing these amazing pieces of writing and writing um, and reading can be such a great entryway into being able to think about things a little bit differently. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know that part of workshops that you facilitated are in yoga teacher trainings. And that's a conversation yeah. being had in the yoga community right now is talking more about inclusivity and just the way that race relates to yoga and um, the way that so many yoga studios are full of just thin white women. Yeah. Um, can yeah. you talk a little bit about the work you've done there or, or where you sure. see the yoga? I, yeah, let's start with the work you've done and then we'll go on. Yeah. Um, so I have been doing yoga for at this point, 30 years. I started when I was 16. Um, and I like my original direction in yoga was Ashtanga. Um, I never have really been immersed in the yoga culture. I always was sort of like slightly outside of the yoga culture. I think that that's for a few reasons. One is that I am deeply distrustful of any hierarchical relationships. So the guru relationship didn't work for me. Like I just, I could not fit myself into that. Um, and then I also, also because of the, the optics of yoga in the West and I just didn't fit, you know? So um, it's, it's a practice that I have participated in for my own growth and my own, um, my own comfort. Um, I do think that part of, if I'm being honest, part of what attracted it, attracted me to it was the, the optics of it. Was it that, you know, that, that idea of like assimilating into that world of beauty that everyone wants to attain. Um, even though it was not something that was attainable to me, I think being adjacent to it somehow made me, you know, had, I had certain feelings about it. Haven't totally unpacked it, but um, the work that I've been doing in the yoga teacher trainings and since I graduated from teacher training really has been about how yoga philosophy and the history of yoga are so closely tied to change, social change. I mean, even though yoga is a practice for internal reflection and, um, and uh, personal liberation, it is directly tied to the liberation of others. And, um, and I think that what I was finding in a lot of spaces, a lot of yoga spaces was inauthentic um, exercise that was sort of based in faux spirituality. And because I spent so much time in my room with yoga DVDs, reading books, my understanding of yoga was very different. I mean, from the time that I started doing it, it there was a spiritual aspect to it. And I remember having an argument with somebody over Facebook 
and this was, you know, years ago, this is probably like 2015, 2016, um, about how was it possible that I could be doing a workshop about yoga and social justice, that yoga was this vapid exercise for white women and you know what did the two have in common and and this was from a white woman that had grown up like her aunt owned a yoga studio and the and work and she worked she is an activist and we so we were having this argument and I it dawned on me that there were so many people that actually didn't understand the roots of yoga um, and didn't understand the the deep complexity that yoga had with the liberation of India, right? Um, yeah, so I think, so I, think <laughs> I kind of went off on a tangent, but so I think that um, what I have been really intentionally doing or trying to do in yoga teacher training is bring some of that conversation to the table. Like you're, you are here to get a, a yoga certification what is it that is fueling the fire of the certification? What do you want out of it? What are the, the questions that you're asking yourself about this practice and how aligned is your life to yoga philosophy? And are you even considering what it means to live by the yamas and the yamas? I think that um, that is really what has been driving me for the entire time that I have been teaching and, and the reason why I got a teaching um, certification was because I felt like um, for me, it was important to be able to more deeply tie them together. And then when I felt called to share that information, to be able to understand it in a way that, um, that I was able to make it accessible to other, other folks. Can you talk a little bit more about how yoga was um, part of the liberation of India? Sure, sure. Um, so I don't know a ton. Um, and if you like, I know what I know just from reading things, but there is a, um, a yoga person that is actually on social media, uh, Susanna Barkataki, that has written an entire book called um, uh, Yoga Roots. I, my, I am so bad about this kind of stuff. I should have prepared notes before we started talking. Um, I didn't warn you at all what we were going to talk about. So understanding, <laughs> understanding um, or practicing, practicing yoga, yoga through Susanna Barkataki. And um, she is actually Desi. So she's an uh, American born Indian woman. And, um, and she really does a good job of explaining um, the history of yoga and the relationship of yoga to liberation and liberation of Indians from the British. So my understanding is that um, the, the practice of nonviolence um, came, that Gandhi was practicing and sort of supported um, in the, the liberation movement in India was directly from the yogis and that they, they sort of worked to support the larger masses of folks in understanding how that worked and what the best ways were to operate in order to get the British out. And then of course there were armed conflicts and all of that. And, and that is part of liberation as well. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't always have to be, but it is, a, it can be a component and, um, and that there are, there, there is history of practicing yogis also being part of armies in order to remove 
people that are doing harm. So I think that the the ideas that we have about what it means to be a yogi in the United States can be somewhat limited when we don't understand history in a broader perspective. And that's actually part of my um, my like larger conversation, whether I'm talking about yoga or I'm talking about um, racial justice, is that history really matters. And being able to understand where you are in relationship to things that have happened before you allows you to make different decisions about how you want to live your life. And without understanding the history of um, why things are the way that they are, there's no way to make any sustainable change. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just reflecting on all of the books in my yoga teacher trainings that were written by men that have now um, gotten. And and meanwhile, I have never heard of this book, which you just recommended. It's, um, it just yeah. makes it very clear that the work you're doing is so needed. Like, uh, just, um, uh, so I have so many books on my bookshelf. Like I'm looking at all of the books on my bookshelf right now. I'm like, Oh, that, okay. <laughs> and not, you know, never, no one ever told me to buy that book. So, um, <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, in your, uh, workshops that you do in non-yoga places, say, I know that you yeah. did work with the national park service, which is so cool. Um, yeah. Do you ever use yoga, yoga concepts? Yeah. yeah. Or can you tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so just like the understanding history is a thread that runs through also practicing nonviolence and truthfulness is a, and, and self-study are threads that run through. So um, to me, the whole idea of being able to be aware of, how your body responds to discomfort is incredibly important in being able to navigate systems of oppression and, and um, dismantle systems of oppression. So we all are very habitual. We have like our patterns and how we, how we behave and interact. And in order to make changes, we have to change those habits. And so there's a, a practice that I do with, um, with folks where I will read passages that are disturbing, right? So it might be about race, it might be about animal cruelty, you know, it just sort of depends. And I have people really listen to what is happening in their physical bodies. So, you know, I will, they'll be sitting or laying down and we'll take some breaths and we'll get into a place where some folks can, can drop in, not everyone, but they can sort of drop into what's happening in their physical body. And then we sort of, we practice being aware of what happens to our body before before feelings or before emotion. Um, and we have this cognitive or intellectual conversation about the sensation in your body leading to emotion and that emotion leading to the feeling loop and how you can actually just, you can stop that. You can notice what's happening in your body and make a very specific decision about how you want to engage. Do I need to step back? Do I need to get more information? Do I need to continue with this conversation, but understand the emotions that I'm having or the feelings that I'm having are related to my experience and actually don't have anything to do with the conversation that I'm having. And so we have that intellectual conversation and then we practice, we practice the the process. And then I talk specifically about what it means to be nonviolent. I mean, I think that violence is so ingrained in, um, in U.S. culture, 
on so many levels that often we boil down nonviolence to not physically harming people. So when we have conversations about nonviolence and I talk about the ways that we are violent through judgment or we are violent through silence, um, it is a different way for people to understand harm, um, mm-hmm. which gives them different tools. You know, when, when you think about harm being much more pervasive than physical, it gives people different tools to start to think about interrupting it. And then the same with truthfulness. I think that we often think about truthfulness as blatant lying. We don't think about it in terms of omission or um, not showing up in spaces where you uh, you know that something is something harmful is happening or telling the truth in order to harm people. <laughs> Right? We don't think about we don't think about all of those nuances, and so just bringing that conversation to the table plants seeds for people to start to think about things a little bit differently, and then practice. So I um, I often teach this practice loop that starts with slowing down and being mindful, and then sort of goes through like understanding your history, practicing listening to understand. Um, making decisions about how you engage and speak. And then it, you know, it's sort of, and then um, the last component is being able to act instead of react. And then it's sort of, it's this practice loop. And so we just, we go through that practice loop and at all points in that practice loop, it does ladder back to yoga philosophy. How much I bring of yoga philosophy to the table depends on the space that I'm in, but that practice loop is always part of the training. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, I think what you really, you really just completely boiled down yoga, which is like this goal of acting instead of reacting. Yeah. Like yeah. it, yeah. that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all we're trying to do over here. That's all <laughs> we're trying to do. Yeah. That's all we're trying to do. Um, yeah. So you do so much for other people um, and you also have a family and a lot going on. So what, what do you do for your own personal practice? What is your practice Mm. like these days? Yeah. Um, so I do still, uh, loosely practice Ashtanga. I, um, my, my teacher here in the Bay area is Melanie Green and I do, um, a very modified full, um, first series practice twice a week. And then, um, four times a week I do, uh, some salutations A and B and then the finishing practices. I think that for a long time and and I, you know, practice my yin um, series when I'm teaching my classes and I create the the practice that I'm gonna do weekly with my students. Um I think for a long time I had this bar for myself. So in addition to being black, I also am in a large body. And I think one of the things is that I sort of had this sorry my nose is really itching um I had this idea that um I was supposed to have enough energy to be able to sustain an hour and a half practice every day um and that's that's sort of you know that's because I started off doing ashtanga when I was younger um and when I was in my 20s sometimes I could manage it I I I injured myself quite a bit um and I, one of the things that I realized in w- working with Melanie is that people do have different energy capacities. And um, I spend a lot of time in the intellectual realm. A lot of my energy goes to that. And so what we've worked on together is coming up with a practice that's 
sustains me and actually gives me energy rather than depletes me. Um, and this is where we've landed and this feels good. You know, I walk, I ride bike with my kids and that is the practice that I do. I do a little, you know, 10, 15 minute meditation um, and be living my life. That is what I can sustain. Um, when I do more, I usually end up getting sick or injured. And when I do less, I don't feel good in my body. So that's kind of, you know, being a householder as it is, that's, that's what I've landed on. Um, and then the other stuff that I do is, you know, just the stuff that people do. I go for hikes, I drink some wine, I eat some chocolate, I read some books. <laughs> All... I think I'll ask. <laughs> <laughs> All amazing self-care. I I love what you're talking about with the energy because that's something I've been talking about in the podcast actually a lot lately is my really wanting to start separating my issues with body image from my yoga practice because it makes it so hard to listen to your body when you're being mean to your body. Um, and it's almost like you wish the asana practice wasn't physical. Cause I'm like, Oh, I I have to, I guess I suppose it makes you really face yourself in that way. Like, um, it's so good to hear that you've found a way that it's working for you. Um, I mean, you know, and, and it ebbs and flows. I think that what you're talking about with the body image stuff is, and, and having to separate that from the practice is, is real. Mm. It's real, you know, I think, and, and also part of the, um, part of what I'm talking about with the non-harm is that Mm. we, we misuse so much of what is there to actually liberate us. Mm. You know, we use it to actually do harm and in rather than to create space for us to, um, to thrive and, all of that judgment about who we are creates more harm in the world because we extend that out to other folks. And so like trying to figure out how to use the practices that we have to nurture us so that we can be more nurturing in the world. I mean, this is, this is absolutely the work that I am committed to is being able to be honest about the ways that we're harming ourselves so that we are able to actually engage in authentic ways and not do harm in the world. Um, and so much of it, especially for, for women, but for everyone, so much of it starts with the way in which we judge and harm our own bodies. Yeah. yeah. I know. And the irony that like, I mean, you were saying this a little bit too, like, really that same judgment is what brought us to yoga, but it's also the thing that will heal us. And also it's just like, (laughs) it's just a big old mess or maybe it's a beautiful mess, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I love that you said you love Surya uh, Namaskar too, because I have to tell I think it is one of the most healing practices of Surya A and B. I mean, if you just, I feel better always after, like always. Yeah. 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 And any, any of the, you know, any of my clients that I'm working with that are, um, you know, struggling, I'm just like, just, you know, do five sun salutations every morning and just leave it at that. Like, just you know, experiment with it, leave it at that for two weeks and see how you feel Mm. because you get all the stuff that you need. Just like, get back bends, get forward bends, get side stretches. 
it's everything. No, I completely agree. I completely, I mean, I could call this podcast Sun A and B because that's exactly how I feel. It is like, yeah, yeah it's everything in right in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, are there, so I, I know you work on yin curriculum and things like that. Do you have like yeah. a favorite? I guess it's probably hard to pick, but do you have like a favorite yin position or something like that's your go-to? I mean, I think that I do a lot of supported, um, supported bridge posts mm-hmm. um, because I think that people sit so much and being able to just be in that space where your pelvis is sort of open and being mindful about it so that it's not too intense. I think that a lot of people want to like stack up multiple blocks and like really have this intense opening in the front of their, their pelvis. Um, and I think that even like subtly, it's just placing a little lift and then extending your legs out and just being able to feel all of that, that stuff that opens up in your psoas in the front of your quads. And then very gent- a very gentle curve in your low back um, can be really transformational for a lot of folks. Um, just that sort of level of openness. Yeah. So that is something, and I like, and you know, supine twists are always amazing too. But I mm-hmm. think in yin, everything is pretty basic. So those are those are the ones that I go to legs up the wall. <laughs> yeah, and those are all great too because you don't need a ton of props, and a lot of people don't have them at their house. Yeah, yeah. yeah I um. I like what you're saying about how everything is like less is more like only you only have to do a few sun salutes or like you can do this small. It doesn't have to be a big back bend. I remember when I first started doing yoga after a class, if I was depleted, I thought it was a good class because I was like, oh, oh, great. Like I really. Yeah. And now it's like I actually don't want you to kick my butt because I have a whole rest of a life to live. (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't want to feel wobbly and unable to function after I'm done with yoga. Yeah, I just wanted I mean I feel that way about all exercise. After a yeah. hike, I'm like, I want to be able to still do whatever after. <laughs> yeah. Um uh wow, this has been so amazing. I don't want to steal too much more of your time, but I know that people are I I mean, if it were up to me, I would, but I will not. Um, I know that people are gonna be so interested in hearing your latest offerings. Is there any how can yeah. they find you and, and what are you yeah. offering? Yeah. So I am both at um Leela Yoga Alameda, which is soon to become the breathing room Alameda, and then um, Laughing Lotus, which is now Body and Soul Yoga Collective. So, you know, so many studios are retooling and rebranding because of online spaces and just different things that have happened during the last year of shelter in place. And then people can always find me on um, my Instagram, which is at, what is it? At Dia. <laughs> Let's look it up really Wait, quick. I follow you too. Yeah. I'll look it up really quick. Um, <laughs> So my Instagram, which is Dia Joyce Penning. Yep. Yeah. Dia Joyce Penning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, I mean, really Instagram is the only social media I'm on. I think I might have a Twitter account, but it's too, it, like it's just too much. It, my, my brain can't process that fast. So mm-hmm. like all my writer friends are like, Twitter's the best. And I'm like, you guys are way quicker than I. <laughs> I need more pictures, less words. Thank you. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. And then, and then you also mentioned the equity collective. And so that is, um, it's the equity collective.com. 
Yeah. And on that website, there's a really lovely little short clip of an interview with you, which I really enjoyed. So people should definitely check that out. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah, that's a whole other, like working with parents and, and schools and that's a whole other component. Yeah, I thought that was so, I know we're going, but that was so cool. Well, I'll have to have you back on. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Um, this is really, this has been really great. Thank you. Yeah. No, I'm thank so excited you. about this project and just talking to people about what they've been doing. It's lovely. It's really been fun. It's like, I feel uh, the joy of just getting to talk about yoga with people has been so great. <laughs> I yeah. 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 Well, lovely. We miss it. I have more to talk to you about, so you'll have to come back. But thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Again, that was Thea Penning. Uh, She generously emailed me just after I interviewed her and um, sent along a lot of awesome um, reading material and people to follow on social media that she mentioned in the show and some that she doesn't mention. Uh, So those will be in the show notes. I've already checked some of them out and I I really recommend them. Um, And then uh, I also noticed that the class she teaches at Body Soul Collective looks really interesting. It's offered on Monday evenings at 4 p.m. and it's called Restorative Yoga Social Justice Reading Hour. And she sets you up in a restorative yoga pose and reads... um, words from a social justice book. Uh, So it's 4 p.m. Pacific, which is dinner time here in Chicago, but I'm going to sign up next week. And then uh, when you sign up for a class, they'll send you a recording. Uh, So I'm going to sign up for the class next Monday and then be able to do the recording maybe someday during the week. So I'll let you know how that goes. Um, But I really recommend it looks really cool. Um, So if you want to sign up with me, I can't do it, you know, during the Uh, live class, but I am going to do the recorded version. Uh, And then when I was doing a little bit more on that website, I noticed that her and Brima are teaching a 25-hour training. Brima was on the show episode five, Brima Jaw, and he uh, was also wonderful. So if you want to learn from the two of them, uh, they're doing a teacher training called Social Yoga and Social Equity. Uh, It's a 25-hour virtual yoga training. Uh, It's May 8th to May 16th. Um, yeah, it looks really cool. So I'll put the info about that on the show notes too. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I hopefully Dia will be able to come back because I feel like we just scratched the surface in all the work that she does. I can't wait to talk to her some more. Um, our sutra, our yama today is a parigraha, which means non-hoarding or non-grasping. Which, as Judith Lassiter points out, it's kind of a complicated one because it's really hard to do something, to not do something, to be commanded to not do something, especially when that thing is sort of uh, not always obvious. Um, I, I do think, though, that with awareness um, of the feeling of, uh, with awareness in our feelings, it, it's much easier when we're being very present to differentiate between um, kind of the feeling of wanting to improve our lives or improve ourselves and the feeling of grasping. Grasping has kind of like a yucky undercurrent, whereas wanting to secure resources or wanting to improve our lives or ourselves or our situation uh, has a different 
it just has a different consistency inside. Um, so I think this is one of those things where awareness is also important because you can't necessarily stop the feeling of wanting to grasp or hold on to something really tightly that you have or wanting to pull, you know, resources from someone else, but you can, uh, not act on it and you can be sort of aware and present with what it is you actually need. And of course there's always a balance because I think part of a bar, a parigraha is acceptance of yourself as you are and in this moment but without uh getting stuck in in who you are in this moment sorry my dog was having a dream i don't know if you heard that there he is he's having a bad dream um it's this ability to improve on yourself without um not accepting yourself as you are or improving on your situations while still accepting your situations as they are in this moment, uh, which is really complicated and hard and something I'm still working on, frankly, and I'm sure you are too. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's a fun word, parigraha. Uh, but I always think it's an interesting conversation to have with each other and ourselves if, if what of the amount that we have of, of whatever material or, or whatever thing is enough and whether or not we need more. It's a good question to ask because I think uh, sometimes my mind can just keep asking for more if I don't stop and think about whether or not I need it. Um, and, and of course, like the, it, I don't know, it really to me is partly to the balance of creating anything in your life. Where, for example, like in this episode, I would have rather it be better. Like I, I would have rather redone the interview with Dia so that I come out sounding less like an idiot. I would have rather uh, redone that intro, even though I did it so many times. I only have a certain amount of time so that I so that I could better express myself. But at a certain point, right, for me to get the show out, I have to just accept it as it is and 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 take note to do better next time. And I do, I do think that's a part of a parigraha too, is this like, um, balance of perfection and imperfection. I don't know if that makes any sense. I really didn't sleep well last night, so I'm like sort of kooky right now. Um, but so I won't take any more of your time, but I will see you in two weeks. If you miss me a lot, you can rate and review the podcast. You can email me Rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. Uh, you know, you can file, follow me on Instagram. You can send me a DM. You can tag me, whatever. Um, I'm here. Uh, okay. Enjoy your practice. Talk to you in two weeks.